Hey, good morning. Welcome to Westbridge Church. My name is Jeremiah. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's awesome to have you with us. I want to say uh, welcome to those of you on our online campus. Thanks for joining us through that venue. And um, hello to those of you in our parent viewing rooms. That's a great option. If you do have small children, you prefer to keep with you during the service. And uh, we're in week two of a series called Faith Forward. I want to encourage you, if you missed uh, last week, go back and check that out online. Um, and if you uh, don't have a Bible, I want to encourage you to grab one. Uh, I, wanna, I, I would uh, challenge you to read through this book of James. It's only five chapters. You can read it pretty quick, but uh, we're going to be going through that over several weeks here. And uh, if you're like, man, where do I read? Or if you have a Bible that was uh, written in the 1600s and you want one that you can understand better, pick up one of these. Uh, they're right at our Next Steps area. You can just grab that for free. It's our gift to you. And uh, we'd love to continue to provide uh, that for people just to have a way to access the scriptures. So uh, we're in week two. Faith forward. Here we go. Uh, last, uh, in 1904, there was, a, uh, there was a story written by H.G. Wells. It was a short story called The Country of the Blind. And in it, uh, it describes uh, there was a, uh, a group of people that were living, uh, really a community of people living in the mountains in Central uh, uh, South America, rather. And um, there was an earthquake. And the, because of that, some of the shifting that took place closed off their valley. And they were basically living in there, this unknown civilization, for centuries and generation after generation after generation uh, came and went. And what was unique about this, uh, the reason it's called the country of the blind, was there was uh, a sickness that, that struck this particular civilization, and everyone in the whole community went blind. In fact, everybody born into that community every generation after was blind. And so for, uh, you can imagine, 15 generations later, the concept of sight didn't even make sense. It didn't even register to them. They went about their business and they did all the things that they would do, but nobody even considered what it would be like to have sight. In fact, even the idea of being able to see was just a foreign concept because no one had seen in 15 generations. And as the story goes on, there's an explorer who's in that area and ends up uh, slipping and sliding down a ravine and he comes to and he stumbles upon this community. And of course he can see and so he's, he comes into this community, starts to live with the people, and starts to realize every single person in this entire civilization is blind. And what, what an incredible thing for him. He's, he's trying to describe to them, like, this is, this is what it is, looks like to, to see the sky and to see the color of the sky and, and uh, to, to see the mountain range around us and to see the, uh, the color of the fields and the grass. And he's trying to describe all this to them. And he lives with them and he, he goes to work for one of, the, uh, one of the villagers and actually falls in love with the villager's daughter and wants to get married. But the more he talks about this ability to see, the more that they think he's crazy. And they start to see his sight as a disability. And they actually get to the point where they say, if you're going to marry, we, we think that you're actually insane, that this is a disability for you, and we want to make sure that uh, if you're going to marry one of the uh, women from our community, that you have your eyes removed. And this is just a crazy twist on this story, isn't it? It's, it's such a, a wild thing to think that the person who can see is actually the one who has some, some kind of hindrance. And in many ways, that feels like the world we live in today, because it can sometimes feel like we live in the country of the blind. Now, I don't mean to come across as arrogant in any way, but if you have eyes to see what might be beyond this physical world, it's kind of like you're the crazy one. It's kind of like you're the one that people go, you're just a little bit off, aren't you? And if you're able to recognize what's going on beyond this earthly curtain into, into life beyond and what lies beyond, increasingly you're made to feel like there might be something wrong with you. 
Like you're the one who isn't seeing things clearly. And this is a little bit where James finds his audience as well. James is the brother of Jesus. He's writing to Jewish believers who have been scattered all over the Roman Empire, and they've been scattered because of persecution. And the reason they're being persecuted is because of what they have claimed to have seen and experienced. And they're saying, we've seen something, we've experienced something. And it's a kingdom that doesn't operate the way the kingdoms of this world operate. It's totally different than that. It's beyond that. And it's life beyond this life. And they're made to feel like, you, you guys are the ones that are really out there. And they're being persecuted. And all throughout this short document, James encourages them to keep their eyes open to the way of Jesus and the way that his kingdom operates. And he works to open our eyes as well. He wants us to, to see life from a different perspective. And so last week we said he wants us to experience joy, discover joy in the midst of troubles of any kind that come your way. And again, if you missed that, I'd encourage you to check out uh, last week's online. But we're taking several weeks to read through this document, this letter from James. And this week we're going to talk about how he wants us to have our eyes open to see uh, the, the evil forces at work in the world and recognize the temptation of sin and how to overcome it. Recognize what, what sin tempts us to and, and how we can be uh, victorious over that. And, and we're going to dive into James's thoughts on temptation in just a second. But first, I want to help us understand something when it comes to this idea of temptation. It's this. It is not a sin to be tempted. I think it's really important to say that right up front because we're going to be talking about temptation today. And when you talk about temptation, there are a lot of people who carry a lot of weight, a lot of guilt, a lot of shame, a lot of pressure around the area of temptation. And I want you to know it's not a sin to be tempted. And so uh, temptation is this gravitational pull towards self-interest. It says, okay, there's something in front of me that will serve me in the short term, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to seize that, and I'm going to choose self-interest over God and others. And so when it comes to temptation, there are people who feel overwhelmed. There are people who feel guilty, people who feel shamed because of things they're tempted by. But the reality is temptation itself is unavoidable. Temptation is not a sign of weakness. It's not a sign of spiritual immaturity. Uh, every single person on this planet is tempted to do things that they know they shouldn't do. We're all tempted to put our self-interest, our immediate self-interest ahead of God and others. We're all tempted to do that. In fact, the author of Hebrews actually tells us that Jesus himself was tempted in every way that we're tempted. So think about that. Jesus was fully human. He experienced the same temptations that we experience. And so Jesus understands that when you're tempted to do things, he faced those same temptations. Here's what the author of Hebrew writes. This high priest of ours, Jesus, understands our weaknesses, for he was tempted in the same ways we are tempted, but he never sinned. So Jesus was tempted in the same ways that we're tempted, and yet, rather than serve his self-interest, he chose to put God and others first. So was Jesus ever tempted to be prideful? Yes. Was Jesus ever tempted to retaliate against someone who had done something to him? Yes. Was Jesus ever tempted sexually? Yes. Was Jesus ever tempted to listen to Justin Bieber? No. <laughs> Not a temptation. In other words, the draw to self-interest is every bit as strong for Jesus. He's just as tempted to say, in this moment, I want to put myself ahead of what God wants and the needs of others. And yet exclusively, Jesus chose to put God and others ahead of himself. You know, we're going to see in, in James' letter here, temptation is not an excuse to live however we want to. So there's this, there's this tension that we all deal with. It's important that we recognize these areas of temptation, that it's not a sin to be tempted, but how we respond matters. 
that we do have the power to make choices. And what James is going to show us is that to move our faith forward in the midst of those temptations means that we own our own choices around those things. In fact, uh, the Apostle Paul would write this. He's writing to people who are in the city of Corinth in the first century. And here's what he writes about temptation. He says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. Now, here's the reality of that. That means that uh, I can't be like, well, my situation's unique, Paul. He goes, nope, it's not unique. There's nothing that you're experiencing that isn't common to everybody. The temptations you face are the same temptations everybody faces. Now, everybody has maybe different specific things that they're prone to, but the reality is temptation hits all of us. All of us are tempted to put our own self-interest ahead of God and others and to seize something in the moment that we think will fulfill our desires. And so he says, look, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But whenever you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Now, I find this verse to be both incredibly encouraging and at the same time incredibly challenging. (laughs) Here's why. It's encouraging to know that I have the ability to overcome my temptations. It's a little discouraging and a little challenging to know that it removes me from the victim column. I don't get to blame anybody else. I am firmly in a position of ownership. I am the one in control of my own choices. And the reason that temptation can be so difficult for us as human beings to overcome is there's, a, there's a sort of a weird dynamic that goes on in life. And here's what it is. I see something that I think can help me serve my self-interest, but the consequences of sin are rarely immediate. And so I do something, and there's actually a consequence to it, a negative consequence to it that's actually hurting my own self-interest, even though I think it's helping my self-interest. But I don't feel that consequence immediately. And also, the benefit of obeying God and doing things his way isn't felt immediately. And so because there's no immediate consequence to sin and no immediate benefit to obedience, it falls off of my radar screen, and I see something that I think will serve my self-interest, and I'm tempted to just grab it. I'm tempted to go for it. And so what we're discovered together and what James reminds us of is that we were created by God. And so following his way of living life is always in my best self-interest anyways. In fact, Jesus would say it this way. He'd say, look, if you try to hold on to your life, you try everything you can to preserve it and and hold on to your own self-interest, you end up losing yourself in the process. Long term, the pursuit of self-indulgence actually causes me to lose myself. And so James says, look, I want to talk about temptation. And the way that he starts talking about it is interesting. He jumps into a conversation around blame. It's a weird place to start, but here's why he does it. See, blame smuggles my struggles into my own future. I would say this. If you want a good way to remember it, you can write it like this. Blame is a a struggle smuggle. Blame is a struggle smuggle. Here's what I mean by that. Anytime I blame somebody else, anytime I blame God, I blame somebody else, I blame my circumstances, outside of myself, here's what I do. I allow myself to take whatever I'm struggling with and I smuggle it into my own future because I don't have to deal with it today because it's not my fault. And so I smuggle it into my own future and now I set myself up for a repeat performance because I've never actually dealt with it. Blame is a a struggle smuggle. As long as I can blame someone else, I don't have to deal with it. 
And if you want to overcome the area of temptation in your life, any area of temptation, you've got to take ownership. You've got to take responsibility for the choices you've made. And let's be honest, the reason that most of us don't do that is because it's not my fault, right? It's somebody else's fault. Uh, The reason it's difficult for us to own our part of our story is because there's a better story to tell. I don't want to tell a story about how I screwed up. I want to tell a story about how you screwed up. I want to tell a story about how somebody else, about how unfair they were. I want to tell a story about how unbalanced they were. I want to tell a story that, you know, they made it difficult for me. And if it wasn't for them, things would be different for me. That's a much better story to tell. I want to paint them as the culprit and myself as the victim. Now, a couple of years ago, uh, I'll tell you what this looks like. I was... uh, with my, I think, I think Liam, my youngest, was probably five at the time. And we were, it was on a Sunday afternoon. It was just me and him. We were driving in our minivan to Starbucks and Rogers to get a coffee. That was it. Simple Sunday afternoon task. Now, on 101 in Rogers, traffic often gets backed up quite far at that stoplight. And they, uh, a few years ago, moved the right turn lane. Uh, I think at, at the time, it was maybe a half of a car length. It was the worst right turn lane ever. And it's like traffic would get backed up so far, and it's like you had this huge shoulder, so they, they lengthened it. It's great. It's the biggest turn lane you've ever seen now. And it's like, you know, 400 yards or something. It's, it's, it's massive. But traffic was still backed up past the right turn lane. So I'm waiting, and I'm waiting to get up to the right turn lane. And I kind of go like this, and I can see it. It's like 15 feet in front of me. And so I just do what any normal person would do, and get on the shoulder and get up to the right turn lane. And I start to turn, and within 10 seconds, I see lights on behind me. And I get pulled over. And the officer goes, do you know why I pulled you over today? And I honestly did not connect the dots. I said, I have no idea. And he goes, well, you were, you were passing on the shoulder. And I went, that? You, you seriously pulled me over for that? I was shocked and appalled. <laughs> and I... Fortunately, I was able to bite my tongue a little bit, but, you know, the thoughts that were going through my mind were not so kind, and I'm like, like, there's, there, this is the crime you choose to pursue? Like, really? Like, I was just like, oh, come on. And uh, he's like, well, I, I said, but you could see what I was doing there, right? Like, like, I could see the turn lane. Traffic was stopped. He goes, wrote me a ticket, said, yeah, I don't care, and uh, have a good day. And I was like, What? Like, I'm fighting this. So I set up an appointment. I went to the, to the mediator where you go. It's not quite in court, but you can go somewhere, and you sit in a little cubicle, and, you know, you fight it out. So I'm sitting in this uh, office at the uh, government center, and she says, now, how would you plead? I'm like, well, she's like, guilty or not guilty? And I was like, well, yeah, I drove on the shoulder, but for like 10 feet. She's like, so Guilty. And I'm like, sure, but you get it, right? Like, I mean, that's not, that's not the, the heart behind that law, right? That's not the, the, like, that's the letter of the law, but that's not the spirit of the law. That's like for people who are driving on the freeway and they're like passing people on the shoulder. Like, you could see what I was doing there, right? And she's like, so guilty? And I was like, yes, I plead guilty. But can you just like, and so she took some money off, you know, she's like, I can knock it down to this or whatever. And then, I'll never forget this, she goes, I've started to leave, and she goes, and I would suggest, if you don't want to get a ticket, don't break the law. (laughs) 
And I was like, thank you very much. I appreciate that. And I didn't want to say anything because I'd already gotten money knocked off. I didn't want her to add it back on, you know. And I was like, this is ridiculous. This is not my fault. This is the, 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 first of all, there's plenty of shoulder. That turn lane should be even longer. The police officer has plenty of other things to do. He should not have pulled me over for that. She could have easily seen what was going on and discarded that ticket. But guess what? I was behind the wheel. Nobody to blame but myself. I was the one driving. And this is what James is saying. If you don't own your part of it, then here's what's going to happen. You're just going to smuggle that exact same issue into your next season of life. Do you know what I've never done on that turn lane since? <laughs> if it was everyone else's fault, then I would just keep doing it. But I, I just had to go, I don't want to get another ticket. Like, I have to own that. That's on me. And so now I wait until I can stay in the line and, you know, go up and, and turn appropriately. Here's what James says. In James chapter 1, he says, he's talking about temptation. He says, and remember, when you're being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. Our tendency is to blame. There's this natural behavior in us that we want to blame others. And probably one of the best examples of this is actually found in the creation narrative in the book of Genesis. In the creation narrative, uh, God creates. And God creates Adam and Eve, and then he gives them all this freedom, tons of freedom and one prohibition. He says, you can eat. I want you to go and be fruitful and multiply and live in this beautiful garden and everything's provided for you. Also, there's this one tree. Don't eat from that tree. And if you do, there's this consequence. You will surely die. And not because I'm going to kill you. That's just the natural consequence of that's, that's where that path leads. You disobey me, that ends in death. That's where that path goes. And then the point of this is God, God's establishing authority. He's God. They're not. And so there's one prohibition and tons of freedom. And Adam and Eve are tempted. They have this desire and they decide, okay, I'm going to fulfill this desire that God's given us. They're able to fulfill the desire, this God-given desire, any other way. They have plenty of options in the garden, but they decide, nope, the one that's forbidden is the one that we're going to go for. The one that is prohibited, that's where we're going to go. And as soon as they recognize that, they have sinned. And sin just means I've missed the mark from what God created. This is God's way and I did it my way and I missed the mark. And so as soon as we sin, they hid from God. And God comes along and he says, Adam, Eve, where are you? And God's not like, you know, this is, a, this is a probing question. He's not like, I've lost them. Ollie, ollie, oxen free, right? It's not that. It's this question of like, why are you hiding? And Adam says, I hid because I was naked. And God responds and says, who told you that you were naked? How, how did you come to that knowledge? Did you eat the fruit that I commanded you not to eat? And Adam immediately responds, yes, I did. And I take full responsibility for my actions. Do with me what you will, but leave Eve out of this. She's innocent. That's not how he responds. Actually, uh, he throws Eve under the bus in about a New York minute. He is very quick to be like, okay, God, first of all, the woman that you gave me, by the way, basically, this is Adam's attitude. Okay, God, listen, this is, this is her fault. And since you gave her to me, this is your fault. And so really, if the two of you could get together and work it out, I'll be waiting here for my apology. Brilliant. It's the blame game. It's amazing because it's a true statement. It's just not the whole truth. It's a, it's a part of the truth. And we get really good at part of the truth to sh sort of shade our story. Well, God made me this way. I can't help it. I, I, I can't help that I, that I lost my temper. I can't help that I yelled at someone because this is just how God made me, right? I, I'm Irish. What can I do about it? I, I can't help it. I'm an Enneagram. Fill in your number. 
This is just how I'm wired. I can't help it. You know what? If my wife gave me more attention, I wouldn't have done that. If they would have, then I wouldn't have. It's their fault. I'm just really stressed right now. Okay, guys, just got to give me a break. I'm just really stressed right now. You know what that means? Have you ever said that? I'm just really stressed right now to, to excuse bad behavior. That just means, listen, I don't have the emotional energy to fake it like I normally do. So a little bit of the real me slipped out. But the truth is, that's all partial truth, and it's blame. And it, it allows us, whenever it comes to sin and temptation, blame enables us to smuggle whatever I'm struggling with into my own future, and it sets me up for a repeat performance. And so James says, stop the blame game. And instead, he points us to the source of why we give in to temptation so easily. Here's what he says. Sin invites me to fulfill my desires in my own ways. What sin does is it says, hey, you've got some desires. Those are God-given desires. But the way that you fulfill those isn't by waiting for God and his way and his timing. The way that you fulfill those is you have something right in front of you and you seize it. That's the way to fulfill and meet your desires. And I want to show you a picture of a kid named Mason. Mason saw something that he wanted inside of a vending machine in Indiana. And Mason decided to get it. This is Mason. Mason couldn't get it with the claw, which he had been trying to for quite some time. And so he just got you know, consumed and obsessed with getting the thing that he wanted. And so he found a trap door in the back and he was able to wiggle in. Unfortunately, he was not able to get out the same way. And so now Mason is stuck. This happened in 2018 and he's still there. <laughs> Fortunately for Mason, there was a off-duty firefighter who was at the same restaurant who saw what was happening and was able to get some of his tools and get Mason out. He had to pry open the vending machine. But think about that. We, we see that picture and we think to ourselves, oh, Mason, buddy, not a good move. That was really dumb. But the truth is, we're all Mason. I mean, we all have desires, and rather than find our fulfillment in God and wait on his timing and in his way to do things, sin invites me to fulfill my desires my own way. That, that there's, there's something right in front of me that has my self-interest in the moment, and I'm tempted to seize that rather than wait for God and wait for God's ways and wait for God's timing. In fact, here's how James says it. He says, temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away these desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. And here's what James says. He's not saying that desires are wrong. He's saying when we try to seize self-interest, when we try to take our desires and fulfill them in our own way, it gives birth to sinful actions. It's not the desire that is sin. It's the way that we try to fulfill it outside of God's way and God's timing. And he tells us sin always costs us more than we expected. So we see something in the moment because we're emotionally attached to it in the moment. And what's fallen off of our radar screen is the fact that the consequence of sin isn't always immediate. It's somewhere down the path. And so we just go, yeah, that's going to that's gonna fulfill this desire that I have. So I'm going to grab that. What falls off my radar screen is the fact that the, the benefit of obedience is rarely felt immediately. It's somewhere down this path. And I'm just looking right here. I'm going to fulfill that desire. And it leads to, James doesn't say the desire is sinful. He says it leads to sinful action. And then he says that sinful action eventually gives birth to death. Death is the end result of going down this path that isn't God's way. Many people think if they're going to grow spiritually, then the best way to avoid temptation, the best way to avoid sin would be to get rid of desire. That makes sense, right? If I have these desires and I'm tempted to fulfill them, then I should get rid of those desires and then I won't be tempted. 
And, you know, if I, if I didn't want sex, if I didn't want money, if I didn't want food, if I didn't want success, if I didn't want pleasure, then, then I'd be truly spiritual because then I wouldn't sin. But it's very important to understand that is not God's design for the human race. In fact, we get a picture of this in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Uh, the writer actually describes what happens to a human being when their body gets old and gives out and youth begins to fade. Listen to what the writer in Ecclesiastes says. This is Solomon writing. He says, when the keepers of the house tremble. So, so the, the keepers of the pillars of the house are your legs. So he's talking about when, you're, when your legs get old and weak and the strong men stoop. So that's your back. So he's describing uh, what happens when your body starts to give out. When the grinders cease because they are few, you're losing your teeth. And those looking through the windows grow dim. Eyesight, right? When the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades, hearing starts to go. When people rise up at the sound of birds, so the older you get, the earlier you get up in the morning, right? I, I have that on good authority. But all their songs grow faint when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags itself along and desire is no longer stirred. Now think about this, right? Notice the phrase, desire is no longer stirred. Notice the writer's not saying, hey, here's your goal. Eliminate desire. That is a spiritual, uh, a picture of spiritual maturity. That's a good thing. No, eliminating desire is not a, a picture of spiritual maturity. It's a picture of decrepitude. That's what the author is painting here. It's what happens to our bodies naturally when we get much, much older, like 50. <laughs> I'm just teasing. You're only as old as you feel, okay? I'm 42, I feel 70. So, you know, you're only as old as you feel. <laughs> when we turn, we, the, the get older and our bodies aren't working anymore, he says, and desire is no longer stirred. That's not a great picture. He's saying, no, this is, a, this is a picture of your body going downhill. That's a sign that things aren't working the way they're supposed to. Eliminating desire is not a good thing. And our culture teaches the exact opposite. Our culture says, no, listen, feed your desires. Any desire you have, go for it. If it makes you happy in the moment, go for it. It's like Cookie Monster, right? Anytime he wants a cookie, he'll get it at any cost. Nom, 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 nom. And so there are people who would say, look, feed your desires. And then there's this whole other thing, distorted spirituality, that says, no, the goal of life is to eliminate desire. And that's actually one of the main teachings of Buddhism. Buddhism would teach that suffering comes from desire, so the way to eliminate suffering is that you eliminate desire altogether. But is that really what God wants? Or did God create us with some God-given desires that he wants to fulfill in us? I think that's the way that C.S. Lewis describes it. C.S. Lewis writes this, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. It's not that our desires are so big and, and we're trying to satisfy them. It's that we have such weak desires in comparison to what he wants to give us. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. C.S. Lewis suggests that it's not, the goal is not to eliminate our desires so that we don't fall into temptation, but the goal is to recognize these, these desires, these things that we have that are just temporary are never going to satisfy. There's something so much bigger that God wants to give us, so much deeper, so much richer, so much fuller. 
And that if we can adjust our eyes to see what God wants for us, why would we mess around with these temporary things? We have these God-given desires, and God doesn't want us to eliminate desires. He gives them to us. He, he simply wants us to trust him to fulfill the desires that he's placed in us. And this is the main lie that the enemy uses to tempt you and me. This is, this is what gets us, is because we have these God-given desires that he's put in us, but, but the, what the enemy does is comes along and says, yeah, but you can, you can actually fulfill that now if you just seize this. If you just dot, 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 fill in the blank, then then you'll get to experience all that God has for you, but you'll get to experience it now, right here in this moment. Take a look again at the creation narrative. The accuser shows up, and we have this word throughout the scriptures. In the Hebrew, it's called the Satan. Uh, We kind of changed it in modern language into a name for a person and named him Satan, but it's actually called the Satan or the accuser. It's a Hebrew word for accuser. In the New Testament, in Greek, it's uh, diablo. Uh, It's our word for devil. It's where we get the word diabolical. And in both cases, it's meant to be the accuser or the deceiver, the one who comes against. And so here you have it in the creation narrative. The accuser shows up, and Adam and Eve have been given one command. You can eat of any tree in the garden. Don't eat from this one. And the accuser says, did God really say that? Did God really say that? Is that really what God meant? It seems like God's trying to hold out on you. I mean, he, he, he puts these desires within you, and then he knows if you eat that fruit, you're going to become like him, and he doesn't want to share the spotlight. You're going to have all the knowledge that God has. You're going to become wise like he is. You're going to have all the knowledge he has. So it's right there. Why don't you just go ahead? Why wait? Why wait on God when you can be just like him? And we see the exact same strategy because this exact same accuser shows up in Luke chapter 4. And I'd encourage you, write down Luke chapter 4 on your notes. Uh, read this story this week. But Jesus is tempted by this same accuser. Jesus, you're hungry. Command this stone to become bread so that you can eat. That's a God-given desire. But the accuser says, no, you should fulfill that desire within your own way. You should take a shortcut. You should, don't wait for God's timing because you have the ability to seize it now. It says he takes Jesus up and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says, these can be yours if you'll worship me. And then he takes him to the highest part of the temple and he says, jump off and God will rescue you before you hit the ground. And all of this is, is a way to say, look, you have some things that you want that are part of the desire that God's put in you, but you can actually have it now. If you'll sacrifice something in the short term, you can actually have it now. And this is exactly the strategy that the enemy uses to try to tempt you and me every single day. He takes our God-given desires and attempts to get us to take matters into our own hands, to fulfill our own desires in our own ways, in our own timing, in our own power, us taking control, seizing something in the moment, putting our self-interest ahead of God and others, instead of trusting that God will fulfill our desires in his way and in his timing. And the fact is God made you. God created you. God loves you. He, he delights in fulfilling the desires of your heart. In fact, I love the way that the psalmist uh, writes this. He says, seek your happiness in the Lord, and he will give you your heart's desire. When you focus on Jesus, when you focus on God and his kingdom, he will give you your heart's desire. He delights in doing that. In fact, he, he writes this in another psalm. Uh, the Lord is near to all who call on him. To all who call on him in truth, he fulfills the desires of those who fear him. And that word fear just means a a reverence, where I recognize he's God and I'm not. And so I recognize he has the ability to fulfill my desires. I don't have to pursue that on my own. He, He delights in fulfilling the desires of our heart. Now think about that for a minute. 
Think about the role of desire in creation. God made creatures. He created them with certain desires to eat, to drink, to reproduce. And he made birds with an impulse to jump out of the nest and fly. And they do it. And he made dolphins with an instinct and a desire to swim. And they do it. And desire in and of itself is not a bad thing. It is a God-given. We are not called to eliminate our desires. But we are, we are called to submit them to God's way and God's timing. God, I have the ability to seize something in the moment here, right here. And I, man, I feel like this is, this is it. But God, what do you say? What's your way? What's your timing? And God promises to fulfill those desires in us in his way, in his timing. And he actually takes pleasure in doing that if we trust him. Now, here's where James goes with this. He says this, our ability to resist temptation is directly connected to our trust in God. So this whole discourse on temptation, he, he brings us right to this central point. Our ability to resist temptation, to say no in the moment, is directly tied to my trust in God to actually meet that need, to meet that desire. And, and we said this early on. You have to know, faith is not primarily transactional. Okay, God, if I confess you exist, I pray a prayer, you owe me eternal life, that's the contract. That's not faith. And faith isn't merely intellectual. It's not, okay, I ascribe to a certain set of doctrines and beliefs, and if I believe the right things, then I'm good with you. Again, that's intellectual, transactional, but it's not relational. True faith is relational. It says this, okay, God, there's, there's some doctrines I got some questions about and I don't fully understand, and there's some things that I've, I've got some doubts about, but everything I know about you, I trust you enough to do what you asked me to do. That's faith. I trust you enough to do what you asked me to do. And in the context of this discussion around temptation, here is what James reminds us. He says this, do not be misled. Misled means I've been led somewhere that I didn't want to go. I, I, I got led down a path that I didn't want to be on. I got, I got misled. And he says, don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father, who created all the lights in the heavens, he never changes or casts a shifting shadow. He chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word. And we, out of all creation, became his prized possession. What's interesting about this verse is I've, I've often heard this verse quoted on its own, but not usually as a part of a larger discussion specifically around temptation. And the reason James is bringing it up is because of the verses that precede it. He says, uh, James understands our propensity to want to take matters into our own hands. James understands our tendency to want to fulfill our desires in our own ways, in our own timing. And then he tells us that will mislead us. That will lead us down a path we don't want to go. And it leads to death. That will take you there. So don't be misled. Anything worth having, anything worth achieving, anything worth fulfillment comes from God. Isn't that brilliant? It's like he says this, oh, by the way, he already chose you. He already gave you birth into new life. He already chose you to be his son, to be his daughter, to be a new creation. He, you, are the, you are the pinnacle of all of his creation, and he doesn't change. He doesn't shift a shadow the way the sun moves and the shadow shifts throughout the day. That's not God. He's immovable in that regard. So if he's already decided to give you new birth into his family and we are his prized creation, what makes you think he won't delight in satisfying the desires that he's placed within you? And that's what gives you the ability to resist temptation. Because I trust that I don't have to seize it in the moment. I trust that God, anything that's good, anything that's perfect, that comes from you. 
So I don't have to take matters into my own hands. I can wait for you. I can wait for your timing. I can find my security, my hope, my fulfillment. I can find it in you. So let's put the whole section together. Here's what James says. Remember, when you're being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. So stop playing the blame game. Take ownership for your own life. You're the one behind the wheel, so you got to pay the ticket. But he says, don't play the blame game. Don't blame God. God isn't the one tempting you. It's not somebody else. If you continue to blame other people, you continue to blame God, continue to blame your situation, you will smuggle that struggle into your own future. you got to deal with it now. Then he says this, temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. The desire isn't wrong in and of itself, but they give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Do not be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. Don't get led down that path because you see it here in the moment and you think this is going to satisfy and it will mislead you. It will lead you down a path you don't want to go. And James says, and by the way, that path is death. That's where that ends eventually. You don't see it right away, but that's where it goes. So don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. Why? Because whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. He chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word. And we, out of all creation, became his prized possession. So why in the world, why in the world would you need to take control and, and work to fulfill your desires in your own ways, in your own timing? When you trust that God is who he says he is, that he will do what he says he will do, you can actually relinquish the need for shortcuts. You can let go of the need to seize something in the moment that will, James says, mislead you or lead you down a wrong path. And you can instead trust in the one from whom comes all good things. James wants his readers to see, including you and me, that moving our faith forward means that we trust that God will meet our needs so we don't have to. And man, when we're faced with that thing in the moment that just says, no, this is it. If we could just pause long enough to think that through. If we could pause long enough to remember, you know what? This could lead me down a path that I don't want to go down. This could actually lead to, this is, in order to, do, in order to achieve this in my own time and in my own way, I have to do something that compromises my character. I have to do something that compromises God's time. And I have to do something that short circuits what God's doing in my life. And I don't want to do that. And if we could pause long enough, instead of getting so emotionally attached to something in the moment, if we could pause and go, okay, this has the potential. I know the consequences of sin aren't felt immediately. The benefits of obedience aren't felt immediately. But this has the potential to mislead me, lead me down a path I don't want to go. So God, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait for your timing. Man, we trust that God delights in meeting the desires of our heart. And you know that's true. James says this leads to death. And here's how you know that that's true is the same way that I know it's true. Because you've been misled down a path that's led to death in some area of your life. And so have I. Every one of us, it's the human experience. We've, we've made these decisions where we go, this is it, and I seize it in the moment, only to realize when I follow that path to its inevitable conclusion, it killed something in me. I lost a part of me. Whether it's, maybe for you, it, it killed a relationship. Maybe it killed a friendship. Maybe it killed a job opportunity. Maybe it killed a reputation. Maybe it killed a, a relationship with a son or a daughter because of something that in the moment seemed like, oh, this is, this is good. 
This will fulfill the desires of my heart and only to realize, man, I was misled. I went down, I, I, I didn't wait for God's timing. I didn't wait for God's way. I just did my own thing in my own timing. And it actually ended up costing me more than I thought it would ever cost me. In fact, I, I, I don't want to oversimplify this, but when we think about addictions, addictions are symptoms of something else that's going on inside of us. And, and all of us are, are prone to addictions of different kinds. Because what is happening is there's a longing inside of me, and I'm going to try to seize something that I do have control over to fill something going on inside of me. And so then eventually what happens is that thing enslaves me and imprisons me, leads to death. This is what James says. All throughout the scriptures, the New Testament writers remind us of this, that the thing that we think will bring us satisfaction here in this life often becomes the thing that enslaves us. And because God loves us, he doesn't want us to experience that. And so James is writing because he wants to spare us the pain of going down these paths that lead to death. And yet... I've been down some of those paths and you've been down some of those paths and that's why it's really, really important that we don't just end this discussion here. But some of you have already experienced that in different areas of your life and here's what I want you to hear today as we close. Failure need not be final. If you've been down those paths, if you're, if you're struggling with something now, failure need not be final. See, I don't know where you find yourself today, but you need to know that failure need not be final. That God is way more concerned with your future than he is with your past. That God never deals with and works with what should have been. God works with what is. So this is why we say around here all the time, come as you are. You don't have to do anything, change anything, reshape anything, earn anything. You don't have to do anything to come to Jesus. You come as you are, and God accepts you as is. Right there, just like that. But then... Because God loves you, he loves you too much to leave you as is. So he says, hey, the thing that you're holding on to, the thing that you're grasping for, it's killing you. It's trapping you. It's enslaving you. So stop that because I love you and I want better for you. And when Paul is writing to his letter to followers of Jesus in the Roman Empire, he, he writes probably one of, the, one of the most relatable verses that's ever been written. If you've ever heard this before, maybe you haven't, but he, he basically just talks about this internal struggle that we have to, to want to either trust God and do things his way or grab control and do things our own way. And he says this, he says, the things that I know I shouldn't do, I do. And the things I know I shouldn't do, I don't do. What a wretched man I am. You're like, dude, that's in the Bible? That's my life. That's, that resonates with us because that's the internal struggle that we all face. There's things I know I shouldn't do. I'm drawn to those things. There's things I know I should do and I don't do those things. And so Paul, Paul says, who, who can rescue me from this? And then he answers his own question. He says this. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. For those who belong to Christ Jesus, no condemnation means you're not condemned. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. So here's what Paul says. When you, when you say yes to Jesus, as you are, you come as is, and you just say yes, you have right standing with God. He does not condemn you. He doesn't look at your past, look at your sin, and say, yeah, well, here's the marks against you. He goes, nope, the slate is wiped clean. You stand before God, not condemned, guilt-free, clean slate, 100%. And because Jesus came into this world to show us God's love, when Jesus died on the cross, he took upon himself your sin and my sin, past, present, and future. He said, this is, I'm, I'm taking on me the sin of the world. 
And now you can stand before God, no matter what you have done, you can stand before God and you are not condemned. You are in right standing with God. Failure need not be final. God loves you so much. And because he loves you, he wants to be the one to then fulfill the desires of your heart. He wants to be the one to take those things that he's put in you and bring them to fulfillment. And he then wants to help you avoid being misled or being led down paths that lead to your own enslavement, to your own destruction. When you go down those paths, he loves you too much to leave you that way. And so he offers the hope of forgiveness. And so Jesus was put to death. His body was laid in a tomb. And according to multiple eyewitnesses, he rose from the dead. And here's why that matters. Because if Jesus can rise from the dead, if Jesus can overcome death, that means he has the power to overcome the things that are bringing death to you and me. He has the power to overcome those things that enslave us and entrap us. And he invites us to stand before him, uncondemned, in right standing with him. And if you've never said yes to that, I want to invite you to do that. I want to invite you to go, regardless of whatever failures I've had in the past, whatever paths I've gone down, failure need not be final. And God, I want, to, I want to have right relationship with you. And so if you're here, if you're watching online, you say, that's me. I want to say yes to the invitation to be a part of God's family. Just agree with this prayer as we close. God, please forgive my sins. Forgive me for the times that I walked away from you. The times that I pushed you away. The times that I, you weren't even on my radar. And I just tried to live my life my way. I tried to seize control. I put my self-interest ahead of you and others. And I pray, forgive me and, and make me your son. Make me your daughter. I want to say yes to that invitation. And then help me to trust you, not as just a, a mental assent to a set of ideas, but to trust you with my life. To say, okay, I'm going to do things your way because, because I trust who you are. And then, God, I, I pray for every single one of us who are doing our best to trust you day in and day out, to follow your way of living. When faced with a temptation right in front of us, when we have the opportunity to seize it and, and fulfill our desires right then and there in the moment, let your Holy Spirit empower us. Let your Holy Spirit set us free. The power of the Spirit has, has more, more, more power than, the, than the, the spirit of death. And so set us free from the things that entrap us, the things that are killing us. And God, instead, may your Holy Spirit give us the ability to pause and to remember, nope, he's the one from whom come all good things. And he will fulfill the desires of my heart in his time and in his way. May we trust you as we continue to walk with you day in and day out. In Jesus' name, amen.